I'm, uh, I'm challenging each of you men to be a part of our men's retreat this year. It's going to be a great time together. It's going to be a time where we're really going to uh, be able to just talk about things specific uh, to us as men and, and grow together and build relationships together. And so please make plans to be a part of that. Please uh, make plans to uh, join us and uh, fellowship with us. Uh, we've got a great venue uh, we're going to have a great time of worship. We're going to have great food. It's going to be a great time all together. And so uh, uh, space is limited. And so please sign up for that. There's a sign-up sheet out at the Welcome Center. And I know that uh, God's going to use it in our lives in a mighty way. So be a part of that. And also, uh, great job, girls. So that was really amazing. You did a wonderful job. That was awesome. And if you know Maddie and Annalise, you know that the second miracle that happened up here is neither one of them giggled through the whole thing. So, <laughs> amen, that was fantastic. Great job. You see, a good job. You know, you, you wonder, Mickey's smart. So you, you, world-class choirs don't just grow on trees. You've got to have a good farm program, see? And so he's farming them up. So that's, that's smart. Let's get our Bibles out. Open to Luke chapter 23. Luke, the 23rd chapter, page 1217 on the Pew Bible in front of you. You'll be able to follow along with us. You can just grab that Bible right out of that pew rack. Open to 1217, you'll find our passage of Scripture. A familiar passage of Scripture, yet we'll look at it in a bit of an unfamiliar way today. Uh, This is the second part of our series that I've called Rescue as we're uh, going through the latter parts of the Gospel of Luke. And um, we're talking about the, the lengths to which God has gone to in order to rescue us as His people. And so last week we talked about the beating and the, the trials of Jesus as He was arrested and as He was uh, betrayed by Judas and then brought before uh, the Sanhedrin and then Pilate and Herod. And today we're going to look at His crucifixion. Now before we... Uh, jump into this uh, passage of Scripture, I want us to sort of set our minds a little bit in in context so that we can understand what we're about to read. Uh, This isn't new information, I don't think, to anyone here. Uh, One of the great things about uh, this fellowship and about our times together on Sundays is that it's very common for us to have uh, folks with us who are either new to church or have been out of church for a long time. And so that's always wonderful. And if that's you, we're glad you're here. And it's a safe place for you to be. We want to make sure that we're all uh, on the same page before we start talking about something. I don't want to just assume that you completely and fully understand what we're talking about if you don't. Now, the cross that that hangs around uh, many of our necks or... Uh, I have multiple crosses in my home and in my office that hang on the wall, various crosses made out of various things that are there uh, as a reminder to me, symbolize different things in my life, as I'm sure you do as well. But I want you to understand that uh, the cross literally is the ultimate symbol of suffering and shame. And that after the apostolic age, once the uh, apostles uh, were were gone to be with the Lord, and the church was uh, led by what we refer to as the church fathers, that there was a 300-year span of time where Christians 
we're told never to speak the words the cross, never to draw a picture of a cross, uh, don't refer to a cross. I mean, the the symbol of a cross was com- was totally and completely taboo for 300 years. It was so shameful, it was so horrific in nature that during the centuries that followed the crucifixion of Christ, where crucifixion continued to go on in, in very public uh, venues, in very uh, great numbers. If you know the story of Spartacus, for example, you know or have seen a, a movie about that, you know that uh, six... Thousand men were crucified uh, at one time. It, their crucifixion was such a central part of culture, and everyone knew what it was. Everyone had seen it. Everyone, it was a, it was the ultimate deterrent against uh, a political uprising against Rome. And so, Christians just completely stayed away from. The cross. They had no symbols of the cross. They didn't talk about the cross. They didn't make artistic representations of the cross because it was so horrific and it was so shameful and it was so horrible. And now, as we are uh, thousands of years removed from this time, we don't see the cross that way. Some of that is for good reason. Uh, Some of that is uh, healthy and good, and we should celebrate the cross. And there's a reason why we have crosses in our homes and in our sanctuary and around our church, because the cross represents the symbol of our freedom, the symbol of our salvation. But at the same time, you also have to recognize and realize uh, how, what what a picture of torture and suffering it is in a culture that endured and saw this on a regular basis. So with that in mind, let's begin reading Luke chapter 23 and verse 27. The scripture says, And now a great multitude of people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, Wombs that never bore, the breasts which were never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will they do in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and they cast lots and the people stood looking on and even the rulers with them sneered saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew that read, This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanging there blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? seeing you are under the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, uh, for we receive uh, the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Father, we thank you for these words, God. We thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you for its instruction and its power. And God, we pray now that you will use it, leverage it in our hearts. We need you through the ministry of the Spirit of God to give us ears to hear and hearts prepared to receive that we might be transformed by what we hear. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. I want us to look at this uh, passage of Scripture from a little bit of a different perspective, uh, considering the fact that uh, this may be the, the passage of Scripture that I've preached on more than any other passage of Scripture, uh, not only because it's just so uh, paramount in our, uh, in our faith as believers in Christ, but also, you know, there are certain times of the year where we're always uh, revisiting this season, this Passion Week. And so today we're going to look at this issue of confusion. There's an issue of confusion amongst these characters that are surrounding the cross. And the confusion that is represented in this passage of Scripture is the exact same confusion that is plaguing many of us today. That although our culture is so far removed from this culture, yet so much is still the same. It's really astonishing to think about in a, in a day and age, in a, in a time, in a place like the United States of America in 2013, that we would be able to relate so clearly, culturally, as, as people, to the exact struggles that are depicted here in this passage of Scripture. Now, the confusion is based around the statement that Jesus makes in verse 34, which is really the central guiding statement of this passage. Jesus says in verse 34, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, I think that that uh, statement has been spoken on most of our lips a hundred, maybe a thousand times even. But stop and think for a moment about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, Father, the people around me are confused. They don't get it. They don't understand. They're, they're, they're misreading all the signs. There's confusion among them. Forgive them, for they're confused, and they know not what they do. Now, I want us to look at, first, a common confusion. There are three common confusions that are depicted here that I think perfectly relate to us today. The first kind of common confusion is that of deception. I want you to notice in verse 27, the scripture says there's a great multitude of people following him. And there's women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus turned to them and he said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren. Wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Jesus responds to these mourning women. Who are these daughters of Jerusalem? Well, there's this group of women and they're, they're weeping and they're mourning. And they may be professional mourners. Uh, they may be those who 
uh, are gathered at a, a, a big event like like a crucifixion of some prominent figure like Jesus who would be there to, to weep and mourn, which wouldn't be uncommon if this were a funeral setting. But these particular people seem to uh, be weeping specifically on behalf of Jesus. They seem to be mourning and lamenting the fact that Jesus is dying. And it's interesting that Jesus stops and responds to them because he doesn't respond to to everybody. In fact, he rarely responds to anyone in this entire uh, dialogue back and forth. And so there, there's these women that are that are mourning and weeping. Now, there's a lot of questions that this causes me to ask. First of all, well, where are the men? Well, men, as usual, uh, we're nowhere to be found. When there's trouble in the Scripture, we tend to disappear, amazingly enough. Uh, it's interesting that if you uh, read the Gospel accounts, you'll find no place in the Gospels where there's a woman who is at odds with Jesus. It's always men. Always. And Luke, of all the Gospel writers, paints such a high picture of women. He's always drawing out. He's the only gospel writer that tells us about these daughters of Jerusalem. But so they're weeping, but he corrects their weeping. And he doesn't say that it is wrong to weep for him. What he says is that it is wrong to weep for him the way they're weeping, that they're weeping in confusion or deception. And we see this because what he says next in verse 30, he quotes from the prophet Hosea chapter 10, where he says, uh, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So he's painting this picture of really Things that would utterly and completely never be said. In other words, in a culture where the, the worst possible scenario that could befall a woman would be to be barren, to have no uh, sons to carry on the name or to, to care for you as you were aging. And so uh, he says that they will, they will come to a point where they will say, blessed are the barren, that that everything will turn, that circumstances will one day be so grave and so horrific and so terrible that everything that we currently think now, everything that you currently have in your mind as horrible and bad that you're currently weeping about, you will see as good compared to what's to come. Because the, the quote from Hosea 10 is a quote about uh, the last days, the judgment day. You'll notice that John the Revelator in Revelation chapter 6 pulls the same quote and combines it with another uh, last end times prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 in Revelation 6 where he says this, uh, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? In other words, what Jesus is saying to these women, let me explain, because I'm sure you're still trying to sort this out. He makes reference to the coming judgment. And what He's telling them, He's saying, do not weep for Me, because in your ignorance, in your deception, you need to be weeping for yourselves. Because you're emotionally connected to Me, but you're not spiritually united with me. 
And so you weep because you perceive this to be a bad thing. Because you don't know me. You don't know the purposes for which I'm here. You don't understand the gravity of what's happening around you. If you did and you understood your condition separated from me, you would be weeping for yourselves. Because what will one day come in judgment, you are utterly and completely unprepared for. This is the statement that Jesus is making. When he he says the little uh, parable there in uh, uh, or proverb in, in verse 31 where he says... Uh, for if in these days and these things in the greenwood, that means when, when it's good, when it's alive, in the greenwood, when things are going well, if these are the things that are going on when things are going well, then what do you think is going to happen when it's dry? That if you think this is bad, you have seen nothing yet. You see, he's trying to explain to them. He's correcting them in their confusion out of the compassion of his heart. He's literally uh, on the brink of death. He's he's literally just, you know, I mean, consumed with everything that's about him. But he stops and takes the time out of the compassion of his heart to correct these women. To say, listen, it's not too late for you to understand and weep for yourselves. He'll give us an illustration of that in just a moment. But it's, it's astonishing that he would would do that, that he's trying to express to them that though I look like a dead man walking, I will live. But though you look like you are alive, you are dead. And that is uh, the, the deception that, that plagues so many of us today. You see, there's many, many people today who emotionally are connected to this idea of Jesus, the Savior, they're connected to the idea of Christianity. They're emotionally engaged with the idea of, of, of going to church or, or saying that you're a Christian or doing good deeds or something of that effect. And so emotionally they connect and they feel grief in their heart towards, uh, towards evil or sin in the world or things of that nature. But They've never been transformed by the power of God from within. They don't have a relationship with God. They don't know Him as Savior. They just know of Him as this figure of good and kindness and love. And I want you to to pay close attention to what Jesus says. Notice He doesn't say... Because I already, if you're in the, if you're confused this morning in the area of being deceived emotionally, then already your heart is beginning to pull back from what I'm saying. And you're thinking, what a, what a harsh God this is who would bring such wrath and such judgment upon the earth. And I want you to pay close attention to the words that are recorded there in Scripture. That you know what the, you know what Jesus doesn't say? Jesus doesn't say that I will hurl the mountains on top of you. He says you will ask them to fall on top of you. That in your lostness, at the point of judgment, you will begin to beg for the mountains to collapse on top of you to avoid the fierceness and the holiness of a just and righteous God. But Jesus doesn't say that He's going to do it. He's just merely warning them out of the goodness of His heart. In His, in, in his dying moments, He's saying, listen, turn, 
and weep for yourselves and understand your condition. And, and what could to some appear to be a sign of coarseness or harshness ought to be seen as kindness and gentleness from a, a, a Savior who is heading to a, an ultimate death on a cross for people just like these confused and deceived women. You see, until you weep for yourselves, you cannot weep properly for him. So he doesn't say, don't weep for me. He says, don't weep for me like this. Once you've wept for yourself, once you've owned your sin, once you've repented and cast your faith at the foot of this cross that he's about to die on, then and only then are you able to weep correctly for the one who is about to die because then and only then would he be your savior. You understand? And so there's confusion and he's trying to correct that. But there's a second kind of uh, common confusion and that's fear. I want you to notice in verse 35. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers, these are the religious rulers, with them sneered saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ, the chosen of God. Verse 36, then there's the soldiers and they mocked him coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You know, the scripture says in Proverbs 29 that the fear of man is a snare. The fear that has gripped these in this crowd is the fear I see of of differentiating themselves from the crowd. In other words, all the crowd is sort of building together. This mob scene is sort of is, is building this energy of hatred and, and negativity towards Jesus. And they're all sort of following suit. And you notice how they all seem to say the same things. Notice that, that it's the, the religious leaders are saying, well, why don't you just save yourself? And then the, the, the soldiers would say, well, why don't you just save yourself? Two groups of people who would never agree on anything, but they're together in this crowd. And, they're, and, and so many people today have the same common confusion where, again, they, they want to be in proximity of Jesus. They want to be in the, in the proximity. They want to be accepted by whatever culture is around them. But they don't want to take it too far. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to... I mean, let's let's be reasonable about this. I mean, I'll, I'll go to church. I'll... You know, I'll, I'll, I'll play the part. I'll... I might even go to Sunday school or I might read my Bible once in a while. But, you know, let's don't get crazy. Let's don't overdo this. I... I, I mean, what would people think? It, it's I have a I have a reputation to to uphold. I I have uh, a business that I have to run. I have employees that that look up to me. I have people that I'm responsible for. And so suddenly, if I begin to adopt uh, this uh, Christian behavior, uh, it's going to throw my world into a big uh, tailspin. Things are going to drastically change in some way, shape, or form. Though I'm not sure how they will change, I'm just afraid that they'll change, and so I'm just going to stay where I feel comfortable, which is right in the midst of a crowd. And so the fear of what other people will think will keep you stranded in confusion. And so we see that 
these in the crowd, as they begin to... There's a huge crowd. The crowd is building. And it's a mob crowd. And they're being led by these two groups of, uh, of individuals who would at any other time in history be utterly and completely opposed to one another. But these religious leaders and these Roman soldiers... And they just simply fall in together. They just synchronize themselves in to be accepted into this group. And in their confusion, they, they're afraid. Oh, what? Surely in this group, there's somebody who's thinking to themselves, is he, is he really guilty of anything? I mean, I was in Galilee just a few months ago and, and I saw this very man healing all the people who had various ailments or diseases. I, I've heard the stories of him taming uh, the, the seas and the storm with just a word. I, uh, my, my brother-in-law was there when he, we fed 5,000 on the side of a mountain right there with a, with a sack lunch. I mean... Are we sure we're doing the right thing? Undoubtedly in a crowd this size, there was a, there was a group of people that were questioning in their mind. I just don't know about this. I'm just not sure about this. This doesn't seem like what we ought to be doing, but they're silent. Because the pressure to conform, the pressure to just go with the flow, the pressure to just stay with it. Don't be different. Don't step out. The fear just keeps them locked in their confusion. There's a third kind of common confusion. And that's really where we'll spend the bulk of our time today because I think it's the most dangerous, the most damning, and maybe the most prevalent uh, of all these fears, and that is anger. You see, anger is an extraordinarily damaging Confusion. Now, notice in verse 39. It's amazing what the Bible can communicate in one simple sentence. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. First of all, underline in your Bible the word blasphemed. Under, understand that the, the previous groups, they mocked him, they sneered at him. They did a lot of things, but they didn't blaspheme him. That this very unique word in the original language is used here to describe only the words of this particular individual. That his degree of hatred, the heinousness of the words that he used were far superior to that of sneering and mocking but reached the level of blasphemy. Really, to understand what blasphemy is, a good working definition of that would be, it's the intentional and defiant dishonoring of the nature, name, and work of God. It's using uh, language to speak evil to such a degree that it becomes abusive. It's the highest degree of verbal assault against God. 
And so this man, this criminal, begins blaspheming him. And notice what he says. He again differentiates himself from the others. Both the religious leaders and the soldiers said, let him save himself. But that's not what this man said. He said, let him save yourself and us. That's very different. He's brought something new into this. He's given us insight into what's going on in his life. We don't know this man's name. We don't know anything about his past. What we do know is that he is a hardened criminal or he wouldn't be in this situation. Uh, we, we know that he's somebody who has uh, not just made a, a simple mistake uh, or omission in life, but somebody who has uh, made a crime to the highest degree a way of life. So life apparently has treated him quite poorly. I think that's obvious. Maybe, maybe he thinks that's God's fault. I don't know that. Maybe he feels like the decisions that he's made are because of decisions that were made beyond him or for him by other people that have sort of set him on this path of destruction, that have caused him to orchestrate the actions in his life that have now brought about the horrific nature of these consequences. Therefore, they're someone else's fault. Now, that's not a new concept in our culture. A lot of anger, maybe some anger in this room, has welled up inside of some of your hearts because you feel like that the events of your life have been far from what you had hoped them to be and that they have come from people doing things uh, around you or to you uh, and have caused you to be in the situation that you're in. So ultimately, you're angry because God's failed you. And so when someone like me stands up and talks about the goodness and the love and the perfection of God, it merely makes you more angry because you just seethe inside thinking, well, if you knew what I knew, if you had been where I'd been, if you'd seen what I'd seen, you wouldn't think that way. Or maybe, maybe anger that leads to blasphemy just wells up inside of a heart that it's not, it's not the culmination of all of these poor decisions and all the circumstances that, that come from that. Maybe it's just one singular event that's occurred in your life. Maybe a long time ago, maybe not so long ago, one, one loss, one tragedy, one unexplainable event in your life that has sort of sunk an anchor of anger and bitterness into your heart towards God. Maybe you're angry because... You know God could have prevented it. You know God has the power and God has the authority, yet He didn't. And therefore, you're angry. You don't know why. Now, I think that either one of those scenarios are interesting on a number of levels. I first want to say that I'm in no way, shape, or form downplaying the degree to which you 
have suffered and the horrific nature of many of the things that many of you in this room have had to endure. Because there's no doubt that all of us, if we heard your story, would say that is horrible, that is terrible. And I don't know how you managed to get through that. But the fact still remains that the anger, in a sense, is a bit confusing. In other words, to be angry at God, the very nature of that statement, to be angry at God, it, it's confusing in the sense that your anger at God simply reinforces the existence of God because you couldn't be angry at someone who doesn't exist, right? But yet, we're angry nonetheless. So if there is a God which there must be because I couldn't be angry at him if he wasn't. So if there is a God that I'm angry at, then he knows the way to get me out of the mess that I'm in. And so this criminal says after his blasphemous words, he doesn't say save yourself. He says save yourself and us. He says, if you are God, get me out of the mess I'm in. Now, I don't think that's a a prayer that's too foreign to everyone in this room. That people will commonly find themselves in a terrible predicament. And they will say, well, God, I don't necessarily believe in you. But if you'll do this, if you'll stop this from happening, if you... I mean, I think this is the prayer that's most often prayed next to the bed in the ICU unit. I think this is the prayer that so often prayed in the staging area of the court systems. I think this is the prayer that's often prayed when we find ourselves in the midst of an unexplainably painful situation. God, if you're really God then why don't you stop this from happening? I really can't count how many people I've had a conversation with over the course of my ministry that are skeptics towards God because they found themselves in a terrible situation. They asked God, they said, God, if you'll get me out of this, if you'll fix this, if you'll keep my loved one alive, if you'll take away this pain or whatever the case may be, then I'll believe in you. And because in their eyes the prayer went unanswered, they remained skeptical. Not about God, because they're angry at Him. Skeptical, nonetheless, about the nature and character of a God who would allow that to happen. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, doesn't answer this confusion. He answers the the women's confusion. But he doesn't answer here because he knows that the only hope that can be had is if he doesn't save himself. That as the religious leaders and as the uh, soldiers and even this criminal say, save yourself, Jesus. If you're the chosen one, save yourself. He recognizes that the only hope that anyone has for salvation is if he doesn't do that. 
And so he doesn't even respond in the face of questions that utterly and completely make no sense. But you see the, the assumption here by bitterness towards God? It's not just that the anger reinforces the existence of God, but, but there's, some, there's some assumptions that, that are sort of predicated into this scenario for, for this to exist. In other words, it only exists if we in our hearts say, well, we know what should have happened. You see, the, the worst day of my life, when the pain entered into my heart that has remained until this day came in, that should have never happened, God. Because I know what should have happened, and that's not it. And you didn't do anything about it. And so, since I know how things ought to go, and since I've already confirmed that there is a God because I'm angry at Him, then surely He should know that He ought to agree with me. Because I, in my heart, have all the answers. And because I can't see... Any reason for any of this to have happened? Because in my, in my ability to know and understand, there's no explanation for why something so tragic would happen to me. Therefore, I'm angry. Now, that's nothing new. There are some of you in this room that right now your heart is ringing like a bell. Because it's just conjuring back the pain that you've suffered. But I do implore you to think with me about the confusing nature of this anger. Because does it make sense to you that there is a God who is so powerful that he could have stopped the incident that plagues you from happening. Yet at the same time, he's not smarter than you. In other words, his power is so great that he's sovereign over all things, but yet the the reality that he might be infinitely not only more powerful than you, but more knowledgeable than you eludes you. That your logic somehow supersedes his. His power supersedes your logic. Now, does that make any rational sense? None whatsoever. That if there's a God, which there is. And if this God has ultimate power, which he does, then wouldn't it make sense that this God who has ultimate power and ultimate authority has ultimate knowledge far beyond, infinitely beyond that which you or I are, have any capacity to understand or know? Well, certainly it does. You see, there's, there's no other way but to stand back and look at that and say, well, that, that's confusing. It's confusion. And so by refusing to open up your heart to God, 
you, you've been hurt. Again, I don't doubt that. You've suffered. I don't doubt that. The pain that you feel is real and it's deep and it's long lasting. And I don't doubt that either. But here's a man blaspheming God who is literally 10 feet away from him. And it's the one who hangs next to him who is the only one who has the capacity to help him and to heal him from the hurt that he has within that causes his mouth to blaspheme. One of the ways in which you'll know if you suffer from the common confusion of anger is because more than likely the people in your family, the people who love you the most have tried time and again over the years to talk to you about this issue. But every time they bring it up, you simply explode and they retreat from your wrath because it's an area that you don't want to address, you don't want to talk about, you don't want to have anything to do with. My hope this morning is that you will begin to open your heart to the one who can help you heal. He can heal you in such a way that you won't understand. You won't get all the questions to all uh, the answers to all your questions in this life. But you'll have peace and you'll have understanding nonetheless. And one day you will know as you are known and as you are ushered into his eternal kingdom forever, things that now elude us and confound us will become clear. But that will only happen if you release the anger in this life. So there's common confusion in the crowd. There's the confusion of deception. There's the common confusion of fear and the common confusion of anger. Now I want us to turn our hearts towards an uncommon clarity. Notice in verse 40. But the other, meaning the other criminal, answering, he rebuked the first criminal saying, Do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Now I want you to notice the lack of confusion on this criminal's part, that suddenly, like a bolt of lightning, clarity begins to come out of the sea of confusion. That this one voice begins to speak in the midst of everything that's going on around him, and he admits what he truly is. He has utter and complete clarity in everything that he says. He admits exactly that which he stands in need of, or in this case, hangs in need of. He says, I deserve exactly what I'm getting, and so do you. But this man has done nothing 
wrong. He recognizes the vast difference between a God as means and a God as an end. In other words, you don't turn to God to get something. You turn to God to get someone. And those may sound close phonetically, but they are eons apart in reality. This man, this criminal in his moment of clarity, he does not ask for paradise. He does not ask that the Lord Jesus Christ take him down off the cross. Neither of those things come off his lips. He only requests that he might be with Jesus. This is a man of utter clarity in this moment. That my point this this morning is that if you are, are suffering in this common confusion, deceived, Fearful, angry, but please listen to what this man says. He merely requested he might be with Jesus. The the first thief in his blasphemy, he's saying to Jesus that if you'll get me out of trouble, I'll be with you. But the second thief is not saying that. The second thief says, I will gladly be in trouble if I can only be with you. I will hang here and die. I just want to be with you. I'm not asking you to help me with my felt need. I'm not asking you to bail me out of the circumstances that I've gotten myself into. I'm owning all the sin that landed me where I am right now. I realize that I deserve everything I'm getting, but all I want to do is be with you. I mean, there is a very powerful spiritual truth being taught here by this criminal that he recognizes and realizes with such uncommon clarity that in a sea of people who are missing it, the most unlikely of all voices begins to pierce from the crowd. Oh, I, I am justly condemned. I have earned everything I'm getting. But you, Lord, you are good and perfect and innocent. And if there's some way, any way, that I might be with you, that is the ultimate and highest desire of my heart. I mean, this is so anti-religion, it's not even funny. It's so, think about it, he doesn't say, where in this is the religious notion that, well, I'm going to do good and God's going to bless me. Where do you hear in the tone of this clarity that this man is confused and that he thinks God owes him because he's been faithful and good? Oh no, you don't hear it. There's no, there's no, the religious crowd is mocking and sneering. This man gets relationship. This is the relational perspective. No, God, you don't owe me. You know, religious people at some point in time always end up angry. Always. I mean, it's a 100% guarantee. 
You see, because religion that says, well, I'm going to do good and then God's going to reward me, that only works fine when things go good. And because life is hard. Because hurt happens to all of us. That at some point, hurt is going to happen and your deeds aren't going to line up with your circumstances and you're going to become bitter. Come on. You visited other churches. You've seen the scowls. The frowns, the moping, the groaning, the grumpy. Not from this man. You see, he has an understanding of God that in the midst of his pain, God is still exalted. That's our goal, brothers and sisters, is to exalt the Lord In the midst of pain. So Jesus responds to this man. Verse 43 says to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What a statement. There's an entire sermon just simply in what Jesus responds. I I hurt in my heart to think about. How many people woke up motivated by guilt and compulsion and pressed themselves begrudgingly towards a church today? Walked in sorrowful and sad because they're struggling with problems that they don't deserve and a lack of understanding as to why God hasn't got them out of it. I want to be amongst the fellowship of believers that declare not only do I deserve everything that I've received, but that's negative that's ever happened to me, but really my suffering represents a very small portion of that which I would ultimately deserve. But the grace and the mercy of a great and loving God to free me from the penalty of my life has now risen my affections above the state of my current circumstances. Uh, let me explain it to you this way. I, years ago, uh, many of you know, I, uh, I, I, I started my uh, working career very young, renting uh, jet skis and sailboats and things on the beach. And uh, as a very young man, I can remember uh, out there running my business and uh, across the street was a big development. There was a big retail development, had restaurants and things in it. And ultimately the owner built a big hotel there. And uh, so, I mean, I, you know, if you're there every single day, seven days a week, nine months a year, you get to know things. I mean, you get to know who's over there, what they're doing, who... So I got to know the, the man who owned the, the whole development. I mean, it, it, probably the at this time in my life, I, I couldn't conceive of his wealth. I couldn't even comprehend. He's probably the wealthiest person I could conceive of was this man across the street. And I used to watch him walk 
along the way in his, around his development. He would, he would start at one end and he would pace all the way around. And he was always looking at the ground, walking across the parking lot. And back in these days, just forgive me, teenagers, but everyone else will know what I'm talking about. They had these foreign things on the wall called payphones. And uh, he would go to the payphones. And if he walked by those payphones a hundred times in a day, he stopped every time and reached in to check and see if there was a dime in the bottom of it. Now, here's the richest person that I could conceive of. And what I finally figured out is that he would walk the parking lot looking for pennies or maybe even quarters. And he wouldn't pass by a payphone without digging his finger in to see if there was a stray dime. Yet he had untold millions of dollars in the bank. There, brothers and sisters, is the exact illustration of the redeemed person who's pouting and bemoaning their circumstances. You have untold millions deposited on your behalf in your account in heaven. Your position is secure. Your eternity is foretold. It cannot be changed. It cannot be altered. It cannot be adjusted in any way, shape or form. You you hold the deposit guarantee of everything that awaits you in heaven. And so let's don't chase the nickels of this life. Let's don't let's don't run after the petty things and the leftovers of a broken down world. Because what happens? Yes. No one is going to disagree that this is a world filled with excruciating pain and hurt. We spend an extraordinary amount of our time trying to shield ourselves from it because we don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. But at the same time, the glory that awaits me supersedes whatever it is that is before me now. That the, the, the balance on the account in heaven is eternity in glory with Him secure forever. And so why? Here's here's the question. Why would God in the midst of this moment in history, that all of history has pointed to this very moment, that right now the Son of God is Hanging on a cross. This is the moment. This is the time. This is when all the prophecies are fulfilled. This is when we're waiting for it. This is what's been predicted. This is what the angels are are peering down in utter amazement at. And in this very moment, God chooses to introduce us to two criminals. Why? Wouldn't you think God would be crucified alone in the spotlight by Himself with no one else around Him? But no, not our God. Not our God. Our God introduces us to two nobody criminals. Why? Why? Because even in the midst of 
the ultimate purpose and the culmination of his life, even in the midst of that moment, he wants to declare as loud and clear as he possibly can that no matter how bad you are, no matter how late you think it is, no matter how far you think you've gone, there's always a chance while there's breath in your lungs. What a God we serve that he gives this illustration, this moment in time for us to back away and to think here are two men with every other thing in common. They, their lives are in the tank. Everything is gone wrong. Everything that, that, that they hoped for at one time in their life is melted away and gone. But yet look at how different their eternity will be. It's a powerful, powerful statement from a glorious God to us. Before I close, I just want us to think. Just one more moment. About what happens when our hearts become opposed in our confusion to God. Jesus has done everything to make himself known on earth. Understand that as the crowd mocks and jeers, as the criminal blasphemes, as all of this is going on around him, think just for a moment afresh and anew about all that has transpired over the last three and a half years, about all the miracles and all the healings and all the amazing things that Jesus has done. He hasn't tried to hide the fact that he's God. In fact, he's already said on multiple occasions, I am the Son of God. I am the one sent. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. He's done every single thing that every man, woman, and child would know for sure who He is. He hasn't hidden that. He hasn't restrained that, restricted that. He's been as open and transparent as anyone could ever possibly be. And yet, in the midst of this overwhelming evidence, it's all ignored. Because I don't understand, because I've been deeply hurt, because I'm angry, because I'm confused. You see the blinding power of confusion? Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, to this man, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't just say that to a man who was hanging on a cross who wouldn't see tomorrow on earth. He says the same thing to you and to me. I thought, in the middle of the night last night, I woke up wide awake and I began to think about Ephesians chapter 2 and what the Apostle Paul said. Listen closely as I read these scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us with, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together. Now listen closely. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, think for a moment about what Paul said. He didn't say who will make us sit in the heavenly places. He said who made us sit. 
In other words, Paul is speaking past tense to which his readers, like you and I, would say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sitting in the heavenly places. Or am I? The moment that I was saved, today I will be with him in paradise. Every person in this room redeemed by the blood of Christ is already seated in the heavenly places. Let's lay our confusion at the foot of that reality and allow the one and only God of the universe to heal our hearts. Let's stand. We'll have a moment of invitation. We'll close our eyes for just a moment. If you just be still and, and just be honor those around you. We don't know who around you is dealing with what. And we want to be sensitive to them. I want to invite you, if God is dealing with your heart, to come and kneel and pray at the altar. Or come and take me or one of the pastors by the hand and say, pray for me, pastor, that I may gain healing or that I may be saved today or that I want to follow the Lord and believers baptism or that I want to plant my life here in this fellowship or whatever the case may be. This time is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how you comfort us in the midst of pain. That God, as you suffered an unbearable, unthinkable death, It was in the midst of that pain and suffering that you brought our greatest comfort. And so, Lord, maybe, just maybe today, in the midst of our pain and suffering, you'll bring the ultimate comfort to our hearts. And we thank you for it, Lord. Now we ask that you'll do what only you can do in Jesus' name.